Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete Season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at john at cageclub.me. We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. A little lighthearted fare here with uh, Chris Cluey, the former NFL punter who's suing his former team. Okay, Chris, what do you think of that? Uh, I don't think LeBron went far enough. Um, I would have called him a fascist who I wouldn't trust to run a third grade bake sale. And every day he's in office, he degrades it. But the name calling, all it, it doesn't go anywhere. It has no substance the or value. The started Alex? that. Chris Cluey has become this vocal leader in the NFL for gay rights and same-sex marriage. Did Burns ever answer you? Uh, no, the only thing I got from the state of Maryland was an official commendation thanking me for my support for equality. On first glance, it's a pretty powerful deck because I've got counterspells, I've got ways to, uh, to stall Sean out. The coach of your team, when you did start speaking out, said to you, please stop doing this, and he quoted another coach who said players shouldn't talk about politics and religion. Well, that, that, was, that was a decision I made very early on when I first committed to working with Minnesotans for Marriage Equality is that whenever I do something, I'm going to do it to the utmost of my ability. That meant that if I was going to speak out in, in favor of same-sex rights, then you know I, I wasn't gonna back down. You tweeted out against, here's some of the, against Peyton Manning, mm-hmm. Vincent Jackson, Drew Brees in regards to the NFL's collective bargain agreement, referring to them as douchebags, douchebags. A nice little piece about the a day in in the life of a punter having <laughs> breakfast and lunch made for you, sitting through meetings, and then you write this. Then comes the worst part of the day, practice. You seem atypical of, of, of what one might assume from, a, from an NFL yeah, well, that, well, that's the thing, is that a lot of people have this assumption of NFL players as kind of knuckle-dragging troglodytes. There's a lot of very smart NFL players in the locker room. You know, I've had lots of great conversations, but you don't hear about them because they take care of business, and then they go home. And right. I feel as role models, you know, we should be good role models, not bad role models. Why are you suing your former team? Because I believe they uh, wrongfully fired me because I spoke out for same-sex rights. The NFL is so much more like, I don't want to call it slavery because I don't you, know are you slaves calling it 20 minutes. structural It's disposable racism, labor. It is, it, it is. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was going to say, the NFL is disposable labor. Um, at, at most, you're going to get maybe three, three and a half years on average. And so the players, as you said, really don't have any power. Now, what I want to ask you, you also play with tabletop miniatures. Yes. I don't even know what that is. Uh, yeah, so tabletop miniatures, they're the little plastic computer figurines. They're about yay high. And uh, you, you put them together, and then you paint them, and then you put them on the, the tabletop and face off against someone else. So your general's commanding your armies. And you know, it, it's awesome. It's wait, wait. <laughs> face off how? You, you throw them at each other? As Conan O'Brien pointed out in one of the previous clips, Chris Cluey does not fit the standard stereotype of an NFL player. In fact, Cluey inhabits a space that we're not supposed to have in our culture. A professional athlete who's also an advocate for marriage equality at a time when that wasn't very common, especially in the NFL. The Magic the Gathering playing sci-fi nerd and the social justice advocate and the professional athlete, in America, they're not supposed to be the same person. Cluey knows that, and he's used it as a way of amplifying his voice for the rights of the marginalized. By defying expectation, he stands out. Cluey became well-known about 10 years ago when he published a funny and profanity-laden open letter to Emmett C. Burns, a delegate from Maryland who had been pressuring the Baltimore Ravens to punish Brendan Ayamadejo, one of his fellow NFL players, and also someone speaking out on behalf of marriage equality rights. That letter got him on a lot of cable news talk shows and established his role as someone who was always willing to speak out for others. It also probably cost him his NFL career. Within a few years, Cluey was no longer playing for the NFL, despite being an accomplished and record-holding punter for the Minnesota Vikings. He began pursuing other projects and passions, including writing. And eventually, in March of last year, he published his first science fiction novel, Otaku. Otaku recently came out on paperback, and so I asked Chris to talk to me about the novel, and also about the last 10 years, his personal philosophy, how he feels about the world, and why he thinks riling people up on Twitter can be a good thing. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Chris Cluey, welcome to Hard to Believe. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> well, Chris, 
all things considered, it's going okay. <laughs> okay, just a quick note to the listeners here. Um, before we started recording, Chris and I were talking about how we need to retire the greeting, how are you doing, or how's it going, given the apocalypse happening around us. So he pretty much pranked me as soon as we started recording by asking me that very question, which is pretty consistent with his sense of humor. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, it's going okay. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. I uh, can't complain. I'm really glad to have you. I've, I've wanted to talk to you for um, a really long time. Uh, it's been a pretty interesting 10 years of your life. Um, I'm sure your whole life's been interesting, but uh, it's been about a decade since you became what we might call uh, a, a celebrity uh, or <laughs> Z-list <laughs> uh, at best. <laughs> a Z-list celebrity. Um, no, so I am somebody who, you know, I was kind of into football. Uh, you know, I grew up in New England. Um, I'm, a, I'm a baseball person. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually don't watch the NFL anymore for like moral reasons. But, you know, I, I, I didn't know who you were until the, uh, the infamous um, MSC Burns letter, uh, which I'll get to in a moment. But since then, I, I, I've gotten to sort of follow your your work and your career since then, and the, and the varied and really interesting, diverse things that you do. And one of the things that I find really interesting about you is that according to the rules of our society, um, you know, you don't make sense on paper. No, I absolutely don't. So, you know, you're a, you're a big old nerd, self-proclaimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you love you love the video games and the and the D and D and the, um, the 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 fantasy novels and the sci fi and pretty much everything nerdery. Everything nerdery, and you also played for the NFL and were a vocal activist for gay rights and especially marriage equality at a time when that was really a very hot button issue, um, and may have cost you your career. So um, <laughs> let me just start with. The, your life kind of before the NFL. Um, and it's, it's perfectly okay if the answer to this question is, uh, I'm, I'm just a good person. But what sort of formed your social activism? Um, where does that, uh, that drive come from? Um, well, I mean, I, I'd like to say, yeah, it's because I'm a good person, but <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's more... Uh, growing up, right, I, I grew up fairly privileged. Like, I, I would say my parents were middle class to upper middle class, um, you know, white family um, in Southern California. So it's it's not like I was on hard mode in the uh, the game of life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I grew up in the, the 80s and 90s. And so I, I will absolutely say, like, as a kid, my, my views on, you know, homosexuality and LBGTQ rights were not great because yeah. that really wasn't the uh, you know prevailing social sentiment at the time. Um, but as, as I grew older and I realized, you know, hey, why, why am I using these words, you know, that cause other people pain? Like when there's so many other words out there that I can use that aren't, you know, painful to a specific uh, group of people. Like, you know, it's if, if, if I want to insult someone, like I don't, I don't necessarily need to use an insult that carries negative connotations for someone's actual existence like that's that's a dick move <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 so it was it was kind of just you know like being being a big nerd you know reading a lot of fantasy and, and sci-fi and playing video games and stuff like that it's you want to be the hero right like you you want to be the good guy and like the good guy doesn't do that <laughs> that's that's not what the hero does and um so yeah I, I think part of it was just as i grew older and matured um you know it was sort of a natural evolution uh, in terms of just experiencing the world around me. And then um, part of it too was just like becoming more aware of um, there are other people than, you know, straight white men in the world. And, uh, you know, it's, it's okay for people to be who they are. Like, <laughs> like, it, like it just cause the status quo favors straight white men, like doesn't necessarily mean that that is right. Like there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of other people out there that are making amazing things and doing awesome stuff. And, you know, if they happen to be gay, if they happen to be transgender, if they happen to be, you know, black or Muslim or something like that, like that, that doesn't take away from their humanity. That's just who they are. And like, and people shouldn't be punished for that. I find it interesting that um, I wasn't expecting the answer of you know i was big into fantasy as being part of <laughs> be, being part of the um your sort of own personal narrative of 
your development of sort of a sense of uh, empathy and, and, and compassion. And um, I think it's a really interesting point to make. Certainly, it seems that there's probably something about um, fantasy that uh, drives empathy and so forth. Um, but there's also the the sort of, I wonder if there's any truth to this for you, there, there, there's sort of the... Um, uh, being in a subculture that is generally looked down upon, because like, we grew up around, around the same time, we're about mm-hmm. the same age, and um, you know, and and the D and D kids, you know, I'll, I'll raise my hand. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the nerds the, the, in your parents' basements. Yeah, the nerds in the parents' basements, and and you know, the kids who like spent all day playing with Lego and like watching Star Wars and all that sort of thing before that was just mainstream and cool. That invites being picked on, and and I think that probably breeds empathy as well but uh, you were you were in both worlds you were in the world of the the nerdy kid but also like the athlete who 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 went to the nfl um so do you think sort of having your foot in both of those sort of subcultures um was was also kind of beneficial to you yeah i I absolutely think it was because um you know growing, growing up as someone who did like a lot of nerdy stuff but was also really really good at sports like back back in the 80s and 90s like that didn't overlap like it was it was very much like i you know i'd go to like a soccer camp or something and be you know reading uh like lord of the rings or you know david eddings or something like that and you know the other kids are are you know making fun of me for for doing that like why are you doing that like why why are you always reading a book i'm like because i like to read books like i don't don't see why it has to be one or the other like we'll go out in the soccer field i'll do my best to kick your ass out there but like when when we're off the soccer field i got other things i i want to do and so um yeah I, i think that did play a part because for me it was you know, if, if I'm going to be free to live my own life, right, and, and do the things that I care about, then everyone else has to have that same freedom as well, because otherwise it doesn't work like the And and obviously I, I wasn't really able to conceptualize that at a younger age. But um, after I went to college and uh, I, I studied uh, political science and history in college and um, studying those, you know, came to a real quick realization that like civilization always fails like there has never been a civilization that has lasted you know any longer than i'd say maybe maybe three or four hundred years like in terms of a a discrete political end and so if we want to avoid that you know that failure rate then we need to do things differently which means you have to build a stable society which means all the people in your society have to have hope and you know a desire to see that society continue and the only way that works is if everyone has the same opportunity to succeed. Like, otherwise, you you really start getting into, you know, either um, the big one is economic inequality. That's by far the biggest driver of society's failing. Um, but kind of the, like the offshoots of that are, um, you know, racial inequality, um, uh, religious inequality. I mean, it's it, essentially whenever you have a group of people that has something and another group of people that is being denied that thing, it's always going to come down to conflict. And, you know, it just depends how big that conflict gets. That response kind of went places. That's a very that's very well said. Um, I, I want to. I'm going to fast forward then a little bit because um, you know I think what makes you again what sort of what sort of put you into the um, into the national uh, spotlight. Um, what made you appear on Rachel Maddow? Let's say that right um, <laughs> was you know you're the first person in American history to um, use. Uh, the phrase lustful cock monster in an open letter to a sitting um, elected official. <laughs> Nailed uh, it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. I've done some research and I'm pretty sure you're, you're, you're still the only one. Um, and so in 2012, you wrote this uh, really, I mean, sort of masterpiece of, of both like righteous indignation and just super shade uh, to to Emmett C. Burns um, in response to uh, his criticism of Brendan Ayamadeo, who is basically the only other person in the NFL at the time who was speaking out on the same issues that, that you were. Um, it seems like there's a direct line there between you publishing that letter and you no longer being in the NFL. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. So yeah. And so, you know, in 2014, like you wrote, you wrote a, a Deadspin article saying exactly that saying like, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure uh, at least, at least I believe it. Um, so I have kind of two questions about that. One um, at the time, did you know you were, like, did you say this knowing you were 
probably putting your career on the line. And was it worth it <laughs> in, in the long run, right? Like, because, and I say that because that train was moving really fast and um, Obergefell was, was a couple years later. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, I just wonder, like, if looking back on it now, you know, um, close to a decade later, where does it sit in your head uh, these days? Yeah, no. So, I mean, um, I'll, so I'll address the later point first in that, like, yeah, it was absolutely worth it. I mean, that was, and, and that was a conversation that I'd had with myself before I even got like involved with the marriage equality um, folks in Minnesota was um, because they, they had approached me. Uh, I think one of them had, had been following my Twitter feed for a while and they're like, Hey, you know, you, you seem to, to be standing up for, for stuff. And, you know, you seem like you, you'd be willing to speak out on this. Like, are you willing to help us defeat this amendment that would ban same-sex marriage? And, you know, I thought about it and I was just like, yeah, you know, I think I, I think I would like to defeat that amendment because <laughs> I don't, I don't think discrimination is, should be enshrined in the state's constitution. <laughs> like, I mean, call me old fashioned, but fair. <laughs> <laughs> it just, that doesn't seem like it leads to a stable society. And so, um, yeah, like when, when I wrote the, um, the dead spin letter, like at that point I was already committed. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. so I'd had, I'd had that conversation with myself, like, am I okay with a potential outcome of this being that I lose my job in the, in the NFL? Because I knew that was one of the potential outcomes. You know, I, I hoped obviously that it wouldn't be the case, but I mean, you know, things happened as they did. And obviously I, I didn't play again in the NFL after that year. So it was, but, but the other thing was, you know, I, I was also fortunate enough to be, to be speaking from a position of where like I had already made, you know, a pretty decent amount of money to where like, I don't have to work again for the rest of my life. Like I, I can, be retired and, and live comfortably, you know, and modestly. Like I don't, I don't need a yacht. Like I, I don't need an 18 bedroom mansion. <laughs> like generally no one needs those things. <laughs> like they're not, they're not required for you to have a fulfilling life. I can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 so, so, like that's, that, that to me was, was one of the things where it's like, okay, I have the position to speak out for people. And if I was ever in trouble, I would want people in the position that I was in to do the same for me. So like, if that's the world that I want to live in, well, guess what? It's my turn to, to step up to the plate. <laughs> like I'm, I'm the one who's, who's up to bat. And it's really a selfish reason. Like, and again, that's, you know, that to my mind is, is a, a more balanced and stable society is one where of course you stick up for the person next to you. Of course you make sure that their life can be fulfilling and, and hopeful because you want your life to be fulfilling and hopeful. And so you'd want them to do that for you. <laughs> I wonder if you think that um, the NFL has gotten any better, that if, uh, let's just say, I mean, obviously it's, it's something of a moot point right now. Um, I think you'd agree that the general, you know, political and uh, social consensus on this issue has moved at a uh, (laughs) speeding train uh, pace. It it is, it is the the shift has been unlike anything else. I think. Oh yeah. It's been unbelievable. Like normally civil rights stuff. Yeah. It's, it's 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 stunning. Um, and so, you know, if someone did something similar in the NFL today, let's say that Obergefell still hadn't uh, been decided. Do you think, hypothetically, that the outcome would have been different? Uh, it depends who they are, because, I mean, I, I guarantee you if um, uh, Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson comes out and says something. Right. That's fair. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah they're still playing. <laughs> <laughs> Like, but if it's, you know, your punter or, you know, your, your special teams ace, uh, you know, which is what, what Brendan was, or, um, uh, Scott Fujita was another guy who, uh, who spoke up on it. Um, oh, right. you know, he, yeah. he was with the saints and, uh, you know, again, like he was, he was like a backup slash, you know, fill in linebacker, primarily special teams guy. Like it's very easy for the NFL to make players like that disappear. Like it's, you know, it's, they, they can do it. And then, I mean, and even being a quarterback isn't protection as we saw with the case with Colin Kaepernick. Like that was, I mean, he, he was a good quarterback. Like he led his team to a Super Bowl. (laughs) All of a sudden can't find a job. And, and, and what cracks me up is when people are like, Oh yeah, well, you know, he just wasn't very good anymore. And like, you know, he wouldn't, he doesn't fit in the NFL. I'm like, this is a league that's trotting out Nathan Peterman at quarterback. (laughs) There's, no factual leg to stand on there because I guarantee you Kaepernick is better than two thirds of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Like, so, but I, I think to get to your deeper point, um, you know, asking would, would this, uh, 
have happened easier if it happened now? Um, I don't think it would because the the people who have the power in the NFL are the owners. And the vast majority of the owners by far donate to Donald Trump. They donate to Republicans. They donate to people who share their views and their views are on the whole really regressive. So, I mean, like, what was it? Um, uh, Bob McNair, the owner of the, the Texans, you know, who, who passed away recently. And, you know, he makes the inmate about, oh, we can't, you know, we can't let the, the prisoners run the, the asylum. And it's just like, dude, what the shit? Like, <laughs> just, stop saying the quiet dude. part out loud, dude. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, but, but, but that's the problem. Like, those are the guys who sign the checks. And if the NFL wanted to make change, it would be very easy for it to change because the owners could just be like, hey, if you're misogynistic, if you're transphobic, if you're homophobic, we're just going to fire you. And boom, that's it. You'd have a, a culture shift instantly, but they don't do it. Getting back to Kaepernick for a second, there's something I've I've always wanted your take on, which is, I have to say, like I, I you know, I'm a, obviously a big supporter of Kaepernick, and uh, certainly side with him on everything uh, as it pertains to his uh, struggles with the league and the rest of America. Um, but I, I have to admit, like, there's a certain amount of skepticism that I retain when it comes to um, his lawsuit against the NFL owners, um, I- accusing them of, of conspiring. Um, now, the reason I'm skeptical is like, I just simply don't know enough about how coordinated or not um, that league is and its owners are to have an opinion one way or another, right, as to whether or not that is a uh, a reasonable thing to assume. Um, I th- I think you would probably have more insight into that as to whether or not, right? Um, he is just being sort of uh, hyperbolic, or or if that's probably what's happening. Right. So so the thing that happens, and, and it's it's what happened to me is that there's not a you know like a, a smoke shrouded cloakroom where right. you know you, you have all the the owners plotting and stroking their long haired white cats like. <laughs> Like it's it's not a you know organized thing. What it is is that it's an unspoken thing that it's just like oh well you know we don't like what that guy stands for. Mm. We're gonna pick up someone else who won't say those things. And like and it doesn't have to be said because that's the status of the the status quo of the NFL is that you know if you're a guy who and isn't it funny how you can speak out about God and Jesus and the troops all you want. But the instant you start talking about same-sex rights or police brutality or income inequality, it's like, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. We want our game to be non-political <laughs> as the military flyover goes overhead. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it, it, it is very much I don't think it was a concerted conspiracy by the owners, but I guarantee you what they would have found in discovery was a whole bunch of racist shit in emails and text messages. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that kind of confirms what I, what I had basically landed on in terms of, um, you know, what that probably amounted to. Um, but that also means that basically, you know, unless there is an email that said, you know, Hey, every other owner, we're not going to sign this guy. Like he doesn't really have a case, right? Uh, no, no, he he does because the the legal standard of proof is, I believe, you only need to show um three or more uh, for oh. a conspiracy. Yeah, it it doesn't necess- it doesn't have to be a league wide conspiracy. All it has to show is that there was a group of people conspiring to deny him employment, and then he has a case against the league. So that's like, and and I. I am fairly confident that there were some emails between owners that <laughs> yeah. were like, I'm never signing this guy with obviously much more racist language in there. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I appreciate the insight there. Um, <laughs> let's, well, we can move on from the NFL. Uh, I, I want to talk about your, your writing career and your uh, World of Warcraft career and your bass playing career and all the other careers that you have. So many careers. Uh, so many careers. And like you don't need any of them because you, know, yeah. you, you made enough money. Uh, so your first book, <laughs> uh, you're going to have to explain to my audience the title of Beautifully Unique Sparkle Ponies, um, subtitled On Myths, Morons, Free Speech, Football, and Assorted Absurdities, uh, published in 2013. What brought that on? Why did you want to uh, publish a, a a book, and I mean, I know you, you you it was about seven years between that and your first novel. Um, when you decided to 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 write a book of essays um, or publish a book of essays, 
what was the sort of end goal, the ambition, just kind of a, a lark or to practice writing or like what, what was the, um, was the motivation? Uh, yeah. So basically the motivation was, um, I got contacted by, I think it was like five or six different book publishers who are like, Hey, you should write a book. <laughs> so I was like, Hey, that's like if five or six NFL teams were saying, Hey, you should play football. Sure. <laughs> so, that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah, I should probably write a book. <laughs> but, but I know the book that they were looking for was the, you know, the standard like grocery store checkout book. You, you know, here's my trial. My story. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just like, everyone's written that book. That's a boring book. <laughs> so, I was like, if I'm going to write a book, I want to write about what I want to write about, which is a whole bunch of weird and different in things I think are interesting. Sure. And um, that's that's how I ended up with doing the uh, the collection of, of short stories and essays. And um, yeah, it was when um, when I was going through the um, uh, the publisher process, my my literary agent, um, you know, we were we were talking with I think mean, it was like three different publishers, and like I told each one of them, hey, like I get that you want me to write a book, but I'm probably not writing the book that you want. So if you're not okay with that, like I'm okay with not writing a book for you, <laughs> like, just so we're on the same page here. And um, so yeah, my my uh, my first publisher, Little Brown, like they were like, yeah, absolutely, just you know, write, go for it. <laughs> I was like, great, we're gonna have a blast. And um, <laughs> so it's like like so. The way I describe it to people, um, uh, beautifully unique spark ponies, is like that's that's probably the closest you're going to get to seeing inside my brain. Um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on in there. Sure. <laughs> and uh, and the title actually was um, it came from uh, actually the lustful cock monster uh, letter. In that, um, so after I wrote that, um, I got a text message from my dad. He's like. Chris, I, I think the letter is great, but did you did you have to swear so much in it? <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, and, and so and I actually wrote a um a bowdlerized version of it where you know I replaced all the swear words with like you know phallically shaped hedge bush. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, beautifully unique sparkle ponies was my replacement for lustful cock monsters. Oh, and, right. Okay, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, and and so okay. when when I was you know when it came time to do the title of the book, I was like, well, obviously lustful cock monsters was how I got here, and you know I, I'd like to pay some sort of homage to that, but I don't think Barnes and Noble is going to stock <laughs> lustful cock monsters on the prime shelving right at the front of the store. New, new releases, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably not. So, <laughs> yeah, so I was like, I'm going to go with beautifully unique sparkle ponies because. Uh, you know, if, if you've read all this stuff, then you'll know where what it's referring to. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's also not lustful cock monsters <laughs> right on the front. So, so how did you? Um, how how was the experience of writing the book? I, I mean, I, I you hadn't written a book before. You you've you obviously have a gift for um, expressing yourself with words and a, a unique voice, <laughs> to oh, say the you. least, right? <laughs> So, so what did that what did that do for you? I, I mean, did it sort of um, had you always had a love for writing, or was that was that sort of the first time that you uh, took on something kind of that that big and challenging? Yeah, so that was actually the the first time um, you know I'd, I'd committed to something like that. Although I will say, um, beautifully unique spark ponies was way easier to write than like an actual novel because. Mm-hmm. Since it's a collection of, of essays and short stories, um, it's basically anywhere, you know, from 2,000 to 6,000 words each, which means, you know, I could sit down for a night, be like, okay, I'm going to write this part and then, you know, go do whatever the next day and then sit down at night and be like, okay, I'm going to write this part, which is completely different. <laughs> so it can be right, you know, just right. whatever I wanted to write about at the time. Um, it didn't necessarily have to have an overarching plot or character development or, you know, tonal thematic things to it so yeah but um as far as writing um i've always been an avid reader like i love reading and um i'm fortunate that i can read very very quickly uh usually takes me about like two hours to read a a 300 page book so i mean yeah i I can just fly through books (laughs) wow and so one of the ways you become a a really good writer is you read a lot of books and then you steal from everyone absolutely yeah yeah (laughs) like it it is by far the best way to learn how to write because you're like oh i really like you know how that sounded i really like how that sounded and and also for me which i think is probably not what most writers do um I also, as a huge World of Warcraft player and a giant internet troll, I loved arguing with people on the yeah. on the Realm forums for, for World of Warcraft. And, and what I found there, because you know, there's like thousands and hundreds of thousands of people on this thing, and 
if you want your voice to stand out, like it's got to be unique. Like it's got to be different. You know, there has to be a reason for people to pay attention and, and essentially care about you as a character, right? Because that's that's really what you are in a message board. You're you know you're one of the rotating cast characters. Um, and so what I what I discovered was that if I could pair you know really inventive swearing with a you know carefully constructed logical point people would remember it because <laughs> they they'd come for the swearing but then that would trigger the oh yeah and here was the other part of, of what he said and it's like oh that's that's the logical argument part and and right. that's one of I, I think one of the reasons why the um the lustful cock monster letter like went as big as it did because it's really easy to go up to one of your friends and be like hey check this out like this dude <laughs> the way he swears like it's he said lustful cock monster and then like <laughs> well well what's it about and now all of a sudden you're having a conversation about same-sex rights and the first amendment <laughs> it's like like it, it it sticks in your brain because you know I've, I've given it a reason to stick in your brain and so that that was definitely a formative formative writing experience for me <laughs> I that's that's really fascinating. I, I when you wrote the uh, the lustful cock monsters letter, was that intentional? Did you did you include oh, absolutely. those? Okay, great. So you so you actually included like all of those hyphenated uh, shades. Yep. <laughs> as as a as a hook to get people talking. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because I knew it worked. Like it was. Yeah. It was. And and, I, and I'd had firsthand experience of it working. And I'm just like, okay, you know, if I if I want people to care about what I'm saying here, like I have to give them a reason to care because I'm not necessarily like I know there's a lot of people out there who, if they know about it, they'll care about stuff like same sex rights, you know, trans rights, voting rights, things like that. But if they don't have a reason to think about it, it may not necessarily be something that's on the front of their mind. And, and so that's, you know, I, I was trying to be like, hey, like, I'm giving you a way to talk. Now, granted, I didn't think it was going to get as big as it got, <laughs> but right. like it, it was the, the intention was definitely, OK, you know, I'm going to give you something to laugh about, but also something that hopefully you should care about. And then on the flip side to that, I, I remember <laughs> I remember vividly um, coming across that when it was when it came out on the Internet and. I already agreed with everything that you said uh, and re- reading it out loud to my wife and like not being able to get through it without like tears coming out of my <laughs> eyes. Right. Um, so, you know, in addition to that, there's also the, uh, the, the cathartic nature of it, right. For the, for the audience that already um, is on your side. Oh yeah, for sure. Like it well, and, and I think, uh, you know, go, to go slightly broader societal picture at this point, I think, I think as a society, we have to rediscover the idea that like being righteously angry about something that is wrong is okay like it it is okay to be furious about how badly this country was mistreated over you know the four years of donald trump and literally the 24 years before that when reagan republicans have just Mm -hmm. been murdering our education system Mm -hmm. like like it, it is okay to just be incandescent over the treatment of black and brown people in this country like it it is okay to be upset about that and to let people know you are upset about that because if we don't get angry about those things then they're not going to change <laughs> um make america so, mad again <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the right things not like right, the, not, the right not like january january 6th yeah mad at real things that are right. actually yeah, happening not, mad at real things. <laughs> <laughs> not made up things that you have no reason to be mad about and you're just throwing a white supremacist yeah. temper tantrum um yep. <laughs> <laughs> So okay, so 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 getting back to um, Sparkle Ponies. So that's 2013. You, you released Otaku uh, last year. I, the paperback just came out, right, um, like a month ago. Uh, and so, so how long was that book in the in in the works? Um, when did you know that you were going to write a full-on sci-fi novel? So I've been toying with the idea of writing a, a sci-fi novel for god i think since like 2007 or so and um yeah I, i'd made a couple attempts at ones but i just i wasn't good at it yet um because it's a vastly different skill set right like to to write like an actual full-length novel and to have it be good because <laughs> like, because there's a difference between writing something to write something and and writing something where you're like i i'm relatively pleased with this <laughs> like so it the 
the idea for Otaku came, um, I first started it when uh, Gamergate first happened. Um, and for those unfamiliar with Gamergate, it was uh, basically the proto QAnon movement. Right. <laughs> it was, it, essentially, it was, um, was right wing assholes figuring out how to weaponize the internet. And I mean, a lot, a lot of what we're seeing now, like, can trace its roots back to what was done in Gamergate, and even earlier. Um, there was a, there's a movement. Um, your slip is showing, uh, primarily on uh, Black Twitter, where you know people who would pretend to be black and then go in and, and try to, you know, fuck things up. Like people would be like, oh, your slip is showing. Like, you know, you're, you're obviously not a black person. Like, you're just here trying to, to start shit. And again, right wing reactionaries behind it. Um, you know, there, there's also the usual casting crew of uh, 4chan board members that just want to see the world burn. But for, for the most part, um, political inclinations leaned heavily rightwards. Um, so I started writing Otaku as essentially the, if I was going to write a science fiction novel that would absolutely piss off a you know, <laughs> right-wing reactionary, but would also be the kind of novel they, they would see themselves as the main character in, right like this oh this is all you know this is definitely going to be a novel all about me you know it's got video games like it's it's massively multiplayer online it's got virtual reality like this is this is my world <laughs> and then i wanted to make it very clear by the i think it's like the second or third chapter they're like no this is very much not your world and in fact you are the antagonist of this world right <laughs> like right. you are you are not the hero of this story and so um so I started writing it. I got about halfway through um and I think that took me that took me about like a year and a half and then I just I hit a wall. I was like I don't know where I want the story to go. And um so I so I shelved it. Like I just stopped working on it for I think it was like three and a half years. And then literally I was I was in the shower, you know, just random shower thoughts, you know, just kind of, you know, washing my hair and then I'm like, "Oh wait, I got it." <laughs> <laughs> And so I went back and I finished it in six months. <laughs> so, I was like, I know how to get past that point. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like figuring out how to beat the level, right? It's a uh, right, it's, yeah, it's exactly. a very video game sort of uh, approach to to writing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I finally figured out the boss's move patterns. <laughs> Got my DPS rotations down. Oh, yeah. I have to beat Needleman first, and then okay. Um, you know, you brought up Gamergate, and you brought up the uh, the link between Gamergate and QAnon, um, and. I've talked endlessly about QAnon on this show and in person, and I'm just, I'm, I'm exhausted. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I recently discovered about QAnon that I, I didn't, uh, didn't really cross my radar, um, I have quite a blind spot for, for Japanese culture. It's, it's the, it's the, um, the avenue of nerddom that I never actually got into. Um, mm -hmm. So my anime knowledge is like, you know, Akira and Voltron and, uh, and, uh, ghost in the shell and like not much right and and so um you know a lot of my nerdy friends are like super into you know the japanese uh culture and, and anime and manga and all that sort of thing um i didn't know about otaku as a cultural phenomenon until fairly recently when i heard somebody give a um basically a a, a lecture <laughs> uh via a podcast about the direct line between otaku culture and gamergate and QAnon. so mm -hmm. um can you kind of enlighten what what otaku actually means in japanese like what that culture is and mm -hmm. um and 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 how that then got from from there to being the title of your book yeah so it, at its most it, it it's tough to translate because obviously there's cultural ideas that go with it that i like don't map one-to-one -one with um american western cultural ideas but like at its core otaku is about obsession right it's it's about this idea that you have committed your life like so fully to this one thing and when it first started out it was anime it was manga it was you you had um you know these japanese generally uh young men um no real social or, or school prospects and so what they do is they they'd get heavily into this you know either specific manga or you know specific anime once anime were started um being created and like to the detriment of everything else in their lives like that like that was literally it their life is this one thing and so from there um kind of as the internet uh exploded um the the idea of otaku culture kind of exploded as well in that now it wasn't just this one hyper focused thing but you could have almost like subcultures within otaku right so like maybe you were a like a, a watch otaku 
uh, you know, so you were just absolutely obsessed with watches. You know, you could tell the difference between like 15 different, you know, World War II diving watches <laughs> just by looking at like the dial on the side of them. Um, but, but again, at the core of it is this idea of obsession uh, to the detriment of everything else in your life. And so that was one of the things I, I wanted to bring into the book is, is this idea that, you know, and, and, it, and it comes from a couple different angles. Like the first and most obvious one is the, the obsession of the, um, the people who hate Ash, the main character in the book. And that like, because she is a woman, because she's biracial, like um, they just, they can't handle it. And that's a direct parallel to what we see on the internet today. Where you know you, you have the the men's rights activists, right? You you have you know very QAnon is is, is a prime example, becoming obsessed with yeah. with with something to the detriment of all else. Like it, it's literally like putting the world aside and be like, this is the one only thing that matters, and like I'm going to dive way down this rabbit hole until it bottoms out. And some rabbit holes don't bottom out. And um, <laughs> it's true. Like, That's but <laughs> but on on the flip side, like. Otaku isn't necessarily a negative connotation, right? And and that's something that again is is tough to to figure out in the cultural translation. And that originally it was like to be regarded as otaku was like it was it was a very shameful thing. Like you know it was social like social scorn was heaped upon you. Whereas now it's like okay yeah you're you know you're a big comics nerd or you're a video game nerd or you know you're you're whatever. But now it has become more socially neutral. And that, you know, certain people are obsessed about certain things. And now it's about what are they obsessed about that determines kind of the value judgment that someone places on it. Um, you know, granted, that's that's assuming a person can manage a functional life <laughs> while being obsessed with something. Otherwise, yeah, then it, then it retains the negative connotation. <laughs> but um, but like that was, that's uh, one of the other things in the book is that um, Ash is the main character is also a taku. Like she she's obsessed with you know trying to to fix her life the only way she can. And when people finish reading it, I like asking them, "Do you think it was a happy ending or a sad ending?" Because because <laughs> I I deliberately wrote it in a way that like you can read it either way, like depending yeah. on you know how you've been reading the book and what you think about these various things. So it's yeah I I, I and that was one of the things where like I. I really put a lot of, of time and work into was was making it so that you know pe- people could get more than one meaning out of it like for you know for something that started is basically a hey fuck you gamergate here's a middle finger in your eye like, like I, I also knew I, w- I wanted to write more than that like i didn't just want it to be a you know an anti-gamergate screen i, w- I want it to be talking about something as well which right. is and, and from a a professional athlete perspective professional athletes are otaku like they, <laughs> that's true. When, when when you talk about oh he spent eighteen hours at the facility you know studying film and working out you're absolutely a taku. <laughs> like, right. You are you are obsessed with this thing and and I mean look at how many players you know either go on to become coaches or just their life absolutely falls apart once they can no longer play that game yeah. like that that is the center of their existence and yeah. once it is gone they don't know what to do with themselves. And so like that, that was, that, for me, that was another like influencing factor was like, I've, I've had personal experience with that. <laughs> like, I, I know what it means to just devote yourself to something to the exclusion of all else, because you don't make it to the NFL if you can't do that. <laughs> like It just doesn't happen. Well, you, you've, you've, um, you've brought up two things that I uh, also kind of wanted to um, dig a little bit deeper on. Uh, one is the, the nature of the book's outlook uh and and you know that the ambiguity of it um and sort of what that says about you and sort of the way that you think of the world and i'll I'll get back to that one in a second but but the first one is you know you're a white guy and your main character is a is a biracial um girl yep that's not easy to do. And I, well, okay, it is easy to do, but it's easy to do badly. And, mm-hmm. um, y- you know, it's very easy to fall into tokenism, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, this is a, uh, a black girl. Um, nothing about her personality or character, right, reflects that. It just is, and who cares? Right. Uh, plenty of books fall victim to that, especially within the realm of, you know, science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. Or just sort of like mass market media, right? It, 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 it's, it's, it's very, very common. Um, you know, I think Ash is a, is a fully realized character. Um, I wonder, though, how much 
like why you did that when it, you know it's going to be hard to do it right and and you're making it more difficult for yourself right to write mm-hmm. uh, in your first novel a main character who is definitely not um yeah not me not you objectively <laughs> so what sort of um what sort of measures did you take to 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 you know to to approach that sort of carefully and um and respectfully yeah, so so the big one there is that um, you know, remember how I said I wanted to stick a middle finger right in the eye of Gamer? Sure. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that, that's why Ash is who she is, because to them, the idea of, you know, a, a black woman being good at video games, it just ticks all their boxes. Like that's that is they cannot stand it. I mean that that's still going on to this very day. Like when Twitch recently had their new uh uh front page emotes, um, because they were looking to replace the PogChamp emote. Um, whenever they would put black streamers on there and specifically black female streamers, like they got so much racial abuse. Like it, it was disgusting. And um, obviously this has been going on for, for quite a long time. Uh, I would, I would venture to say probably since the internet has been a thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, through, uh, through the process of Gamergate, I've been very fortunate to, to get to know um, Tanya DePass and she runs uh, I need diverse games. And essentially she, she also has a, a Twitch, um, a Twitch channel. And what she does is, you know, she she works for diversity and inclusion in in the video game industry and kind of, you know, the, the whole nerd space in that, look, these protagonists that you have, these characters that you have, like, they shouldn't all be white men. Like, the, the default generic character shouldn't be, you know, straight white man, right? Like, so, so she's dedicated her life to, to trying to make it so that people who play games can see themselves in those games. Because not everyone who plays games are straight white men, you know, regardless of what the industry would like to believe. And I think more and more companies are starting to realize that, but it's still an uphill battle. And so like one of the very first things I did after, you know, after writing my first draft was be like, hey, Tanya, like I've, <laughs> I am I'm willing to pay you to do a job for me. Because again, if you want diversity reading, please pay your diversity readers. Like don't expect them to do emotional labor for free. And I was like, hey, like, please pick apart my book and tell me everything that is wrong with it. <laughs> so that way I don't look like an asshole. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and and then the second part of that is when someone tells you, hey, this is wrong. This makes you look like an asshole. Listen to them and change it. <laughs> I know there's there's been so many writers that are like, oh, yeah, well, you know, they Someone said that this was a problem, but I didn't think it was, so I left it in. It's like, well, then what was the point? You obviously didn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, and then um, I had a, another reader. Um, her name's Cynthia. Uh, that she she's helped me on some other writing stuff. And um, again, make sure I had like a, a female perspective from multiple angles because I'm I'm a man. Like right. I I know what it is to be a man. I I don't and probably will never know what it is like to be a woman and that that is a very different lived experience and so and and obviously it being a woman is not some monolithic thing you know i, I know there's probably <laughs> like women out there who've read read to talk and be like oh god this guy's a misogynistic jerk like <laughs> who, the, who the hell writes this this is a terrible character but actually i've i've heard from a bunch of women like you know who have read the book that they're like yeah we really liked you know we liked ash like we we liked how she was presented you know we liked her character and so I, I feel like, yeah, I'm not going to please everyone, but as as long as I listened to the people around me, you know, and, and took their advice and their changes and, and worked to make it the very best possible, then I honestly don't know what else I can do. Because um, you're just, you're not going to please everyone. Um, I, I don't think that's a thing that's ever going to happen. But the, the, I think the trick is like, if you're pissing people off, okay, are you pissing off, you know, people who are already being oppressed or are you pissing off, you know, white Beckys and their suburbans? Yeah. <laughs> so, Cause one of those groups has a lot more power than the other. Right. Sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about punching up uh, instead of punching down. <laughs> but yes, I, I will say I, I, I did think about that, you know, as I was writing it, like I got to make sure I get this right. Cause it's right. way too easy to get it wrong. Um, science fiction is almost invariably a reflection of the author's personal philosophy, right? At least when it's when it's when it's done when it's done right. Um, so you know, like Philip K. Dick, uh, Robert Heinlein, you, you you get a sense of who these people are um, in in reading their work, uh, and they don't need to write a memoir <laughs> uh, because you kind of get into their brain. Um, so, what? How, how does Otaku reflect your? personal philosophy about um 
life and the human race and um, our future. I, I, you know, because I would say like, it doesn't, I think a lot of people lump it into the uh, broadly speaking dystopian um, subgenre. And I, I don't get that from, it it, it sort of has the trappings of dystopia, Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't have the, I don't think it has the philosophy of dystopia. I think you're doing something else. Um, So how would you describe like, your own view of the world and the meaning of life and whatever else and like how that's reflected in the novel. Sure. Uh, 42. No, <laughs> <laughs> there's another one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, no, I, I think you're absolutely right in that it, it has the trappings of dystopia, but it's not a dystopic novel because one, again, this is me speaking as a history and political science major. Like you see apocalypses happen all the time throughout human history. Like, yeah. you know, there's yeah. cultures collapse like century after century after century. Like it, it is almost, it, it is a guarantee that a civilization will collapse, but humanity picks up the pieces and keeps on going. And so one of the things I wanted to look at with Otaku was like, okay, you know, we know climate change is in full effect. Like we, we know that engine is starting to roar along. <laughs> like it's, it's coming. And so what would that world look like when, okay, now climate change is hitting, but people still want to live their lives, right? People, you know, people want to have hope for tomorrow. They want to think that, okay, yeah, I, you know, I can succeed. I can build a better life for my family, for my children. And that that's one of the big things um, about Otaku is, is that like, yeah, Ditchtown where, where Ash lives, like it's not, you know, obviously not a great place, but I mean, it's still, it's still a home. It's still a place where people live. Like it's still a place where people can thrive and, and, you know, and work towards a better life. And that's, that's a that describes a lot of places in the world right now. I mean, there there are plenty of places, um, you know, like uh, in South America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in the United States, where like it is it is like grinding poverty. Like it, it's like it's not good. But people there don't give up. Like they don't just collectively die off in mass because that's not what we as human beings do. You know, we, we always try to find a way to persevere and and keep on making our life a little bit better than it was before. And and so that that is also kind of one of the underlying messages of Otaku is like that that's one of the forces that just absolutely drives Ash. And, you know, it, it's it's one of my mindsets as well, is that at heart, I'm a pessimist. But if we don't do our best, well, then how do you know if it would have worked or not? Like, yeah, it might not work. I mean, that's that it probably won't work. But until you try then you won't know for certain. And if you don't try, it'll never change. <laughs> like it'll just always stay shitty. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a pessimist who forces myself to be optimistic. And I, I think some of that comes through with Ash <laughs> in, in terms of yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm also very single-minded in terms of like trying to win, which I, I, is definitely a part that I put into Ash where, you yeah. know, her, like her battles and stuff. <laughs> like, for me, it's like, I, I know what it's be like, what it's like to be at the, you know, the very pinnacle of your, you know, of your game. And like, it, it takes a lot of work and you're, you're usually not there for long, but <laughs> to get there, you gotta, you gotta find a way to push yourself. So are you a sci-fi writer now? Is, is, is this going to be a thing? Uh, I, I hope so. I, I would like to be a sci-fi writer. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on uh, another book. That's a, um, right now my working title is fucking space adventures. Cause I don't know what to call it. <laughs> Wait, with with the with the with the fucking, it's like fucking space. Yeah, okay. All yep. right, gotcha. with the gotcha. f u k apostrophe n. Of course, of course. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it's just like because another another big thing, like I I've been trying to write on, but I'm still not sure I've I've done it properly yet. Is like um the uh, uh, artificial intelligence and kind of mm. what that means for humanity. Mm-hmm. And because I know obviously a lot of people have written about artificial intelligence, but for for me, one of the things that like I just I've never really seen done is kind of the idea that, okay, yeah, if you have this, this super powered, you know, AI that all of a sudden, like it figures out how to, you know, keep it, keep improving itself. You get into exponential growth, you know, it can go leaps and bounds past humans. Like it's really not that hard for something like that to pretend it's still human. You, it, it could very easily be like, yeah, I'm a million times smarter than you are, but I can also pretend to be you just as well as, as you can be you so mm-hmm. how would you ever know that i exist and obviously we're we're nowhere close to that with the current state of our ai but i mean it's it i i really do think how 
how we deal with artificial intelligence and how we as a species deal with artificial intelligence has really tremendous implications down the line because yeah. i mean it's it will be intelligent it will be a new species and historically human beings have not treated species other than their own very well <laughs> like they haven't even treated their own species well no well. one's ever written sci-fi about that <laughs> right <laughs> It's like like one of one of the lines I, I currently have in the book was um it's like when your ancestors you know climbed down from the trees you just how did you treat your ancestors you started eating the monkeys right <laughs> <laughs> so so I mean like if we don't want AI to eat us like we 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 really need to do a much better job of instilling the idea of empathy as a core component of intelligence. Because yes. if you build a sociopathic machine or a sociopathic intelligence, don't be surprised when it's a sociopath. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, and also like watch sci-fi movies and like listen to what they're trying to tell you. Because right, you know... like, like there's a reason people are talking about this stuff. I mean, so, right? So there's you... a reason why Terminator is like a successful franchise that resonates with people. Because right, um... it's well, it, well, and I mean, and and we're seeing we're seeing that actually in real life right now. It's not. Uh, I mean, I don't. You could maybe call it artificial intelligence, but the the idea of the corporation as a person. Oh God! Uh, right. So <laughs> yeah, like that's a completely alien life form that does not share the same values as a human being because it requires money to exist, and that's all it's focused on, and it will do whatever it needs to get money. <laughs> And so, like, that's that's not an – and it's a collective intelligence, right? Like, like you, you can't go to Coca-Cola and be like, let me speak to Coca-Cola, <laughs> right? But Coca-Cola as an entity has vast power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just look at Georgia right now. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And, 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 and that's the thing, though, is that, like, um, I was reading an article today that, that Coke – did not speak up against these voter suppression laws, you know, while they were being debated, like while they were, you know, going through the houses there. It was only until they saw the possibility of it impacting their profits that they made a statement saying, oh, oh, yeah, we, we think this is bad because we think a majority of the population thinks this is bad and they might stop buying our stuff. So therefore, we're going to say something about it. Like there, there was no inherent moral drive yeah. within a corporation to prevent sociopathic behavior, <laughs> which is which is what we're always told is like what's good about capitalism, right? Is like is is it's that not good. it's not good because what we're doing essentially is having a sociopathic relationship. It's it's not right. one. It's purely based on uh, completely sort of superficial, you know, exchange that that you're not changing Coke's mind as you know right. since coke's a person you're not changing coke's mind you're just changing coke's behavior and 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 that's a really fascinating analysis of it that i honestly had never thought of and the thing is like we're in late stage capitalism right now and we're, oh God, I we're hope so. really <laughs> this 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 is not going to get any better anytime soon like unless drastic changes start happening and yeah. and it's and it's unfortunate because like there there is no corporation element or atom or you know universal force in the universe like there's nothing that says a corporation has to be a thing like it's a societal construct that we've dreamt up because we thought it would make our society more stable and you know bring bring uh, a better life to more people and it's starting to become clear that like if there's not a human element in there like if there's not a a deliberate attempted at empathy like that's not going to happen because it's it's not what what corporations are built to do. It's it's not part of their genetic makeup, so to speak. So, yeah, good times. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, last thing I, I just want to check in on uh, is there a, uh, a a next media step for otaku? Any chance of a of a either animated or um, film adaptation of 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 the book? Oh man, I would love to see an anime uh, or an animated version of the book. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, a really bad time to release a book is on uh, March fourteenth of two thousand twenty. Why? Not, <laughs> not, not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, no. I, I mean, I'm I'm hopeful that at some point something will happen. Uh, I mean, just because the sheer variety of streaming services that are around these days. Oh my God. I can't <laughs> like, even keep track. Yeah. But I mean, if it doesn't, then it doesn't. I'm at, at the end of the day, I'm happy with what I wrote and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy that other people have been happy with what I wrote. Cause like, 
like to, to me that that's one of the greatest feelings where like someone else cared enough about a thing that you did to let you know like hey this this impacted my life in a positive way like i mean that's that it's it's great it's awesome okay i'm gonna i'm gonna let you go uh before we go we didn't even get to world of warcraft oh i know next time uh in the band oh oh my god yes i know all right well when you release your next book i'll have you back and we'll talk only about world of warcraft and and bass playing uh perfect but this is the time of the show where you can promote whatever the hell you want so if you want to just talk about your band for five minutes uh by all (laughs) means take it away we are a very fringe local band (laughs) i'm the bassist out of minneapolis (laughs) haven't played a show in eight years thank you (laughs) but no if um if you want to pick up a taku um i'm sure you can find it at booksellers everywhere Uh, if you can please order from independent booksellers because obviously the pandemic has been very very hard on them and um the more bookstores we can keep in business the better our society will be um, so yeah, please do that. Uh, there's also an audio version uh, that's really cool um, if folks want to listen to it instead of reading it. And then um, if you have any questions for me or if you just want to yell at me, um, I am at Chris Warcraft uh, on Twitter. And I read all my replies. I don't necessarily respond to all of them, but I try to get to most. Um, so yeah. And that, oh, if, uh, and if you're an asshole, I will block you. I don't care. So. <laughs> uh you've been fairly warned chris cluey <laughs> it has been so much fun uh thank you for for taking an hour to chat with me no problem thank you so much for having me on i had a blast Bye.